Okay, so, yeah, meta meditation. Good alternative to the evening news every now and then. <laughs> so, should I watch? Should I watch the news or should I do meta? Okay. <clears throat> so, need to see what we're going to talk about tonight. I can't wait to find out. <laughs> Does anyone have uh, any questions? Yes? Oh, I was just wondering if anybody uh, could put me up for tonight. I live a little bit out of town, and I, I have my mattress pad and pillow and sleeping bag with me, so if anybody has a piece of floor I could sleep on, anybody like to volunteer? If nobody else can, I have to call my housemate so and hide a lot of people, but if nobody else can. I do it. I, I get up at 5 in the morning. Oh, well, you should get right around that time. That would be perfect. <laughs> oh, okay. oh, great. Thank okay. you. Okay. No, I'm the floor. I, I'm the couch. A floor is more comfortable. Right. Thank you. <laughs> I could. Okay. Questions? I don't know, maybe this isn't the surprising question, but we were sitting and doing that, and then you said, now do it to yourself, and I was like, what? It just felt like this alien thing. <laughs> it felt like this alien feeling like, to imagine <laughs> feeling that way. I don't know, it was interesting. It was well, a surprise. Mm-hmm. See, that that's an important thing about loving kindness and compassion, is we do need to learn to direct them at ourselves. You know, and uh, I, I think everybody has that need, but some more so than others. It's not unusual that people, you know, they they feel undeserving of the same things that they would offer to someone else. You know, or they're very self-judging and uh, critical of themselves and unforgiving. You know, we've all messed up sometimes in big ways. You know, and hey. If we're going to forgive other people, we have to forgive ourselves, too. <laughs> it's all part of the same thing. And love ourselves. And we all have a right to be happy. So, so the fact that it kind of surprised you and, and seems a little... That's, yeah, those feelings. I was like, wow, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. You, you need to know that you... You deserve that too. Yes. I, I've just been wondering um, with the with the technique with Meta and um, trying to kind of um, wake in that the, the feelings that you're going for, like the, the feeling of you know love and happiness and all that, which seems to be the real the real goal is to really the, the feeling of that more than the ideas around it, but um. I was curious, kind of in light of what somebody said on the retreat, they were mentioning how in the practice they use where there's a lot of visualization, they found that they just kind of got really good at jumping around from image to image and thing to thing. And I found that really difficult with, and I have found that really difficult with Meta too, where it's really hard to kind of keep that state up. Like it just keeps wanting to deflate. And then if my mind wanders, then it really does deflate. Yeah. Um, and so there's like different tricks I've used 
The one that seems to work the best is when I'm thinking about the person I want to feel those things for or to have, have those feelings, is to imagine them laughing mm-hmm. or smiling or like that, that's seeing them in a state yes. like that. Um, but the, a lot of that, and then a lot of that feels like it's almost too kind of dynamic and movie movement, or I don't know, it just feels kind of jumbled. Mm-hmm. And then also, I was wondering, when you start to branch out um, to bigger and bigger spheres of loving kindness, um, sometimes it's like, I, I, to make it more real, I start imagining people in town, like characters I would see, or, or areas that I'd be in, in town, or in the country, or whatever, and all that feels just like too kind of burdensome. So I don't know, <laughs> it's just, it's like too busy. Um, and it's like you're saying, you get too lost in the thoughts. So anyway, I was wondering some kind of concrete examples of how, in those instances, to bring, to really feel that, because it's hard for me to really feel Stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially spontaneously like that. Yeah. How is it? Yeah. Okay. Well, these are these are very good questions. Well, um, the sequence in which the med- that we do the meditation is it also reflects the sequence in which you'll develop it. So in the beginning, you may need to spend a lot more time just on calling up those feelings. Just in the very first part of the meditation, when you say, "May I be." free from suffering, you know. Uh, some people have uh, a lot of suffering in their lives. And they may really have to to think, to remember what it feels like not to have that suffering, because it may have been a while. And the same thing, you know, may I be free from ill will. And you, you, may, you may have been experiencing a lot of, uh, of strife in one situation or another. But... Where, where just you just start with wherever you are, and you bring up as much of you do whatever you can to bring up that feeling in yourself as strongly as you can, and then you're absolutely right. As you go along, there's two things. Yes, it's very very helpful to visualize. Like when you're picturing somebody in your mind, I think certainly myself, I find it very helpful if I can imagine what that person, where that person might be, and what they're doing right now. You know. Like, if it's if it's in the evening, you know, and I want to direct this towards my mother, I think, what well, you know, I, I kind of imagine her in the kitchen, you know, getting things ready for for supper, right? And just so that I can kind of see that, and then I imagine that, you know, she's right in the middle of maybe peeling a potato, and all of a sudden she gets this, wow, <laughs> and I, I find that very helpful. But the other part of it is true, is that. You know, you can go too far with that. You can get too busy. You sort of lose the feeling yourself, and then it starts to be kind of an empty, hollow thing. You know, you call somebody to mind, and you're sending in these feelings, but you, you're not really feeling them anymore. You know, and so at that point, you go back and you, you know, bring them back up again. And as a guided meditation, we go through the whole process. But you know, you go, you go as far as you, you spend as much time as you need at any one of these stages and, and you, you go back to recalling the feelings for yourself as often as you need to. And if you don't go through all the stages in the meditation at one time, it doesn't matter. You, you go through the ones that you have time for. But there is balance. And the thing to keep in mind is that you want to keep these feelings as present as you can given the limitations of 
who you are and what's happening in your life right now today. But given those limitations, you want to keep those feelings as strong and as present as you can. And then do whatever you can in the way of visualization to help with with projecting those out. But always realize that as soon as you give your mind the license to start thinking and visualizing, it has a tendency to get carried away and then you start losing it. So. Does that does that yeah. help? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think especially just, just the the advice about just staying with whatever level you can handle mm-hmm. that because I think that's something I forget to do. About. Yeah. Often too, though, you'll find that from the time you start to the time you end, you may you may discover that like you, you may start out and it, it's hard for you to really get a strong feeling of what it's like to be happy. By the time you're finished, you might find it's a whole lot stronger, yeah. and that's that's really the way it should be. Yes, I find that what helps me is when I can visualize the people as I knew them as children. Now that's not mm-hmm. everybody, but obviously my sisters, for example, and then that brings a lot of smile and, and, and joy inside yeah. me, which I can then. That's that's very good, yes, and that's very true. And now that's something that I I think is especially applicable when you get to the point where you're trying to generate these feelings for people that you're having trouble with in your life and that you don't necessarily spontaneously have good feelings towards you know you don't you don't try to visualize them as they were the last time you were in the middle of an argument. <laughs> you know, I, and, uh, so that's true, true though with anyone at any time. You know, if you know, if visualizing them at another time and under other circumstances helps to bring that feeling forward, that's what you want. The most important thing is bringing that feeling up and, and bringing it as strong as you can, and very sincerely. Directing it, you know. And don't worry if sometimes it's hard to, you know. Some people you might just not really be able to uh, direct those feelings towards. And don't get, don't judge yourself for it. That's, you know, maybe, maybe tomorrow, maybe next time, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, talking about difficult people, I um, I have never been able to do meta practice with difficult people up until today, and it was really quite amazing to visualize people. Uh, and I'm thinking of people in particular who I used to work with, who uh, I had great difficulties with, and they had great difficulties with me as well. And I, I was able to picture them and bring loving kindness to them, and I almost. Be like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be angry. I'm supposed to hate them. But they just wasn't there, and it was really wonderful. And I sort of thought, oh, you know, really a way to say this history is they said things and did things that I don't think they should have said and done. And I said things and did things that I don't think I should have said and done. And that's kind of the whole thing. Oh, well, I'm sorry it didn't work out. But I really am sorry it didn't work out. But now I got stuck in a different place, which is when we got to all sentient beings, the first thing that came to my mind is about the meat eaters. When a meat eater kills another animal, does not that other animal suffer? 
But I don't want the meat eaters, eaters to go hungry either. I don't want them to suffer. And so my mind got kind of stuck on, like, I had to choose. Mm-hmm. And so I, I sort of moved it over to just imagining the young of all of these animals being fed by the mother. And then, okay, everybody's happy when they're young and they're being fed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then I, but I still have that kind of question of, so what about the meat eaters? Mm-hmm. I think that they are causing suffering when a lion chases a gazelle. To me, it seems the gazelle would be suffering. There would be fear, I guess. Mm-hmm. So what about that kind of thing? Well, uh, that's, that's a very good thing for you to continue to contemplate. Uh, but notice, notice the element <coughs> of uh, <coughs> judgment and attribution to the, the meat-eater as, as the cause of suffering mm-hmm. to the prey, as though there would be no suffering without the meat eater. Remember that life on this plane is permeated by suffering. Yeah. Right? So, uh, the, the predator is only doing what it was born to do in the same way that time will do the same thing to you you know the predator will kill its prey in one way or another something will kill you you know time and you probably don't have a you don't focus on time or aging or disease in the same way you do the predator but they're doing exactly the same thing and if you can just see that if you can just see that the predator and the prey are, are part of, of a whole, and the nature of that whole is that there is, that there is suffering, there is death, there is pain. And at least in the case of this example, both are playing out the roles that, have, that they didn't choose for themselves. Gets a little bit different if you start looking at, you know, human beings inflicting pain on other human beings. It's not quite so simple. Although, if you go into it deeply enough, you can see that it is really the same thing. But it's a lot harder to see. But can you follow where where <laughs> going with this? That that. But it's good. The, when those things come up, they're wonderful. Be glad that, oh, good, here is something Here's something that there's not clear understanding of yet. And so this is an opportunity to go a little deeper and to, from the point of view of compassion. Because you can't reserve your compassion only for the victims. Although we may like to do that. <laughs> it's a spiritual practice. We can't limit our compassion only to the victims. That's interesting that you say that. When I was coming home today, I was listening to NPR, and it was on forgiveness. I heard that too. And it was about a woman who picked out a man in a lineup in the 1980s and said that, and believed that he was her rapist 
and he was in prison for many years before they did a DNA test, and he wasn't. And she talked about going to him and asking if he could forgive her. And he said that he had already done that and that he did not want to be imprisoned by his own thoughts. And, um, and that he didn't want to be imprisoned by uh, his anger towards the guards or whoever. And um, they wrote a book about forgiveness wow. and it's it, it was on this I believe and it was just like totally amazing to me and I think of the the things that I think oh I can't forgive somebody that you know and it's just such a lesson thank you I, I wish I had heard that I'm glad to hear that glad to hear that that's out there being said mm-hmm. Terry well, I was thinking about when I was doing it. It was like spontaneously different people coming up. <coughs> and then spontaneously it came up that it was people who I don't even actually know, just people that I know from message boards on the computer. Mm-hmm. But they're kind of message boards for like trauma survivors and stuff, so it's like really like lots of suffering, you know. And it was painful to do that. And mm-hmm. I guess that's just part of the meditation, but it was kind of painful like when those people came up, you know, that image as people that bring that mm-hmm. attention to. And I definitely, I, I want everyone to understand that you, you know, go at your own pace with that. There, you know, if you find that there's some people that you're just, you know, you're, you're not ready to forgive, you're not ready to feel compassion for you can look forward to the day that you can, but if you're not ready yet, you're not ready. You know, and that's all right. It's all right not to be ready. No, I did feel compassion, but it just went along with like painfulness. You know? It is. Realizing well, like, how well, much pain they had been through. You know, just thinking of this group of people and yeah. remembering all these stories and being like, wow, you know. Well, yes, and that when we start, when we start allowing ourselves to open up to feeling compassion for other people. And we we open ourselves up also to to feeling their pain, mm-hmm. uh, and you know it's like anything else. That could go too far, but it's also a good thing. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing, especially if it helps you to get to place where uh, you you can accept and let go of your own pain. Mm-hmm. And you can do that with other people's as well, and perhaps help them to do the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess I think it is like we were saying, though, it's important to like acknowledge that, because a really good friend of mine is like that. I really, really love this person, but sometimes it's really difficult. It takes a lot of energy to be with this person, just mm-hmm. not because she does anything, but just because she's had so much suffering and is still going through this stuff, and just to kind of just witness it is like, it takes a certain amount of energy, you know, and a certain amount of... Mm-hmm putting yourself out, I guess, in a certain way or something. 
Anything else? In the last few classes, or, or Thursday evenings anyway, I'm not sure if classes is the right name for these discussions, but <clears throat> we did get rather deeply into uh, some of the uh, insights regarding the nature of self and selflessness. And uh, just wondering if there's anybody who was a part of those discussions who has anything that has come up since then. Because some of that stuff is not easy to accept, I know. I, I realize that. And some of it can be... Um, well, I'll just leave it at that. Some of it's not. Some of it's not easy. So I want to know if anybody's had things come up in regard to that. I have a question, but I hate to be the one asking questions. Anybody else has one? <laughs> well, if you have one that's you know fresh off the griddle and ready to be. <laughs> that's ready. <laughs> I'm wondering about um, like when I came back from the retreat. The retreat was really good, but then sometimes there's a. a physical state that you get, like it's a PTSD thing, it's this hyper-arousal thing. It's really uncomfortable, it's just like total, it's like overstimulation, you know, it's like sounds and everything is like too much, right? Mm-hmm. And it kind of, it seems in some ways really similar to mindfulness and in other ways different. And just kind of looking at that, because it seems like being mindful can flip over into that other state, and I'm just not really sure exactly what the relationships are between those two states and how... Yeah, how they're the same and different and how they're connected. I don't know if you'd know anything about that question, but I figured I would try. Uh, if let, let's see if I understand correctly what you're what you're talking about. Uh, you see, <clears throat> often what limits our mindfulness, the, the the strength and the clarity of our mindful awareness is the sheer quantity of information and stimulation that we're subjected to. Mm -hmm. So that the only way we can deal with it is to put some filters between us and, and all of that. When you go on a retreat and you have this quiet time you're calming your mind down. You're allowing your mind to become very open and very aware. And you're used to being in that way where the total degree of stimulation is very low. Then you go back into the world, you tend to get overloaded. You don't have those filters in place. Mm-hmm. And you experience a very strong degree of scattering. And you know when you're sitting and practicing meditation, uh, there's sort of a balance. Like if your mind becomes too aware, too alert, too energized, then it's like there's just too much happening, and you get, you get it feels really scattered. But then, if your mind is not alert and aware enough, if it, if the energy level falls too much, then you sink into this sort of, uh, of dullness. And so, in the meditation, you're practicing finding that balance where you're not going into dullness and and uh, you're you're not going into distraction. And of course, as as your skill improves over time, you you 
enjoy a higher and higher and higher level of mindful awareness without going into distraction. You're you're able to become more and more aware without without your mind just all of a sudden starting to go everywhere. At yeah, once. it's almost like it's almost like when you meditate, the sounds will be really acute, and you'll hear things much more. And this is almost like it can almost get like to a panic state because it's just it gets painful and it's just like I don't know, it's that kind of a thing. Yeah, so it's always a good idea. The longer, especially the longer you've been in retreat, <clears throat> to give you the, give yourself uh, a longer period of more gradual acclimatization back to the to the the noise and fury of the world. <laughs> um, but, you know, you, you can do that without just going back into a state of dullness. And what you'd really like to do is to come back into the world with more awareness, but, but more centeredness of your mind so that it doesn't start to throw you off and, and carry you away. And that's kind of what happens. Is I wish I could like describe the stuff, but I don't know that there's words. Because we had to go to the DES office for this access thing, and that's like an insane place. There's kids running all over the place, and sometimes people putting out all sorts of crazy energy and whatever. Yeah. And so it changed, and it was like it didn't, it wasn't overstimulating, but we still had energy, like to smile at the kids and mm-hmm. to be friendly to the people and stuff. But it was different somehow. But I don't really know how to describe it or say it wasn't like being cut off. Because we were not cut off, but we just kind of <coughs> just quite, you know, just kind of did. It was all, it was almost like having something there, but it wasn't like having something there. I don't know how to say that. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I'm, I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to there, but you know, you can see where you, where you'd like to be. You'd like to have the inner stability, the the inner peace of mind, to be able to let all this stuff just come and pass through you and you can only attend to what you need to you know what what's important so that means that you can smile at the kids and be 100% there while letting all the other noise and disruption just pass through that's where you'd like to get to hmm. so you don't have to filter it out mm-hmm. yes to go back to what you had said, do we understand this self and no self? Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, the time that it becomes extremely difficult for me to understand it is when I think of the concept of rebirth mm-hmm. and I think of the Buddha having uh, remembered his many rebirths and, uh, before he finally became a Buddha. Mm-hmm. And that's when everything sort of falls apart for me. Mm-hmm. And the whole concept of the Tulka, is it Tulku? Tulku. Tulkas. That's when uh, the sense of no self gets completely lost. And mm-hmm. I try not to use too much of my mind to understand it and hope mm-hmm. that it will somehow sink somewhere deeper and that some, some somehow instinctively I'll understand it but I'm nowhere near any of that. Okay, so <clears throat> if I understand you correctly 
And this is the problem that anyone who starts seriously studying Buddhism comes to at some point. And it's an intellectual problem. Okay? If the Buddha taught that there was no self, and he taught that there was rebirth, how how on earth do we reconcile these two things? And the problem here is what we think ourselves when we hear about rebirth and what we project into that. This is the problem. Because until we truly understand this characteristic of no self, (coughs) all of our thinking is going to be flavored by this belief in some kind of a self, which is not really very clear-cut and it takes very different different forms and shades and meanings, and so it can be very confusing to us. So, the difficult thing that we have to do, you know, and and it's the difficulty is only relative. It's not really difficult, but it, what makes it seem so difficult is that we have this very deeply ingrained pattern of a way of thinking in, in our mind, and it's very difficult to get over an ingrained pattern of thinking, even though the transition from that pattern to a more correct view might not. Might might not require such a. Uh, it, it might not require some huge, complicated, intellectual process. It may be a simple shift, but when it's deeply ingrained, it's hard to make that shift. And so we may have to go through a lot of stuff to get from here to there. But there is an empirical self. There is there is a meaning to the word myself, and there's a meaning to the word I when we talk. And it has a very common sense meaning. But it's not the ultimate truth. Not only is it not the ultimate truth, it's not even a particularly uh, functional fiction the way it often gets applied day to day and week to week and in one circumstance to another. It is a it is this idea of self that we have is a construct of our minds that is applied to this constantly changing and ultimately selfless psychophysical entity that we are, but we have this strong sense of self about it. And you know, we say we, we feel like I'm, I'm the same self that I was when I was two years old, and I feel like I'm the same self that I was yesterday. And we can trace a con- continuities of all kinds. You have memories of that, you know. And uh, even if the body is not the same, you know, 
all the parts that have been changed in it have only changed a few at a time, you know, right? <laughs> and so you may look very different than you did 10 years ago. You may not even have a single atom and molecule in your body that's the same as it was 10 years ago. But even if that were the case, there's, there is this continuity that all the parts have only been replaced a few at a time and the differences in form that have come about. So there, there is a certain sameness and selfness about your body. But that's not the self that's the problem. Okay, It's, it's this attachment and belief that there is some substantial self, some unchanging, continuing thing that you can keep identifying with as self. And the only reason that that's a problem is that as long as you have this notion of self, there's an absolutely inexorable, inescapable logic to craving, to desire and aversion, and you're going to continue to experience suffering. So the only way to overcome suffering is to be able to overcome craving. And the only way to overcome craving is to understand this selfhood as it truly is and to actually lose entirely the attachment and the false belief in the kind of self that we, that we believe is there because it doesn't, it doesn't exist. There is continuity though. And the continuity of a person in a lifetime is a commonsensical kind of thing. When we start talking about rebirth, though, we want to take this imagined self that we perceive ourselves to be, and of course, we don't want, uh, you know, the, the, the mind's created the self, and, and the mind is self aware, and the mind doesn't want to be annihilated. The mind believes it is the self that it imagines itself to be. And the mind does it fears death, doesn't want death to happen. Right? Uh, you know, immortality. Why? Why would we like to be immortal? I mean, would you like to be immortal? Does the idea hold some appeal? Most people, most people would probably have some uh, some desire for immortality. But all that immortality is, is that something that you might otherwise dread happening in the future isn't going to happen. I mean, okay, you're immortal. Well, you know, uh, I'll tell you what, I'll sell you this, drink this, it only costs you all the money you have, but I guarantee you, you'll be immortal, and it's a money-back guarantee. Doesn't work? (laughs) I mean... So what is this immortality? It's just the fear of death. It's the fear of the loss of something, you know. And this is, but this comes up as soon as we talk about rebirth. Any vestige of this that we have in ourselves, well, we want, we, I, I, we want it to be this imaginary self that we cling to, that's reborn. But if we look at this reasonably. Um, it's kind of a, it's a childlike view, and it's a childlike attachment, and we have to come to a much more 
mature understanding. When we come to a mature understanding, we'll discover the deathless, the unborn and the unconditioned and the unchanging and the deathless. But it's not the me that we want to hold on to. It's something beyond that. But we can never get that out until we get rid of the me that's standing in the way. But let's look at this attachment to this me going from life to life. Um, Let's supposing that you could recall uh, an assortment of previous lives in the sense that that you would remember uh, what it was like to be this person, this man or this woman or this boy or this girl, uh, doing this, hearing that, feeling this, having that done to them. And then you could go to some other recollection of what it would like to be this other different person experiencing those same things. Would that not be much like when we had a really good movie and we really identify with the character in the movie? Is that not much the same thing? What it's like, what it is like to be this person and we sort of live their life vicariously in the movie or in a, in a very well-written novel. Or in our imagination. Do we not do this in our You know, what would it be like to be like that? The recollection of those past lives, what more value or significance would it have to you than than movies or, or, or books or your imagination. Oh, okay, what you might do is there is you might say, oh, wow, in this past life, this happened to me, and I guess that's why I'm like this today. Okay. All right. Uh, if you remembered a whole bunch of different past lives, well, now which one are you? Am I that person? No, I'm the one before. Or the one before that. Well, I'm sort of like this one, but I'm also sort of like that one, but I'm not I'm not the same as any of them. You wouldn't be the same as any of them, would you? You know. Um, what you are may encompass the karmic results of what a number of other persons did in other lives. But you are not any of them. And as a matter of fact, all you have is those karmic results. If you look at your two parents, you have some of the characteristics of each of them. And your two grandmothers, some of them. And your two grandfathers, some of them. And your four great-grandmothers, and so on and so forth. You're not any of them. You're not identical with any of them. You're definitely causally related. You know, you, you certain aspects of your appearance, you can say, obviously I got that from these genes that this person transmitted to me. And you may have certain personality characteristics. It's not just the body and appearances. Our personality characteristics, 
our temperaments. Don't we see that also in grandparents? And you know, he's just like his uncle Harry. You know, sometimes I can't believe it. He just, you know, he's so much like his uncle Harry. You know, and it's not because he hung out with Uncle Harry and copied him. It's because those things too are determined by genes. There's things about our physical bodies and our appearances and our skills and abilities and talents and our personalities and our predispositions that we can very easily trace to little bits of matter, DNA, that, and we don't have any problem with the idea of, yeah, I, I got those tendencies from it, but I'm not that person, right? But, and it's really no different with karma. You know, we inherit certain karmic propensities from psychophysical entities that have lived and acted in the past, but we are not them. And they are not us. But it is so easy for this sense of highness, meanness that I have to seize onto that as, ah, oh, I really exist. So I existed before. I'm going to exist again. Oh, and I can hold on. And so in that way, we can really let the idea of rebirth get in the way of our getting beyond our attachment to the illusion of self. And we need to do that. And on the one hand, it's difficult. It's painful to let go. You know, okay, so I'm... I don't have a soul, I don't have an eternal self that's always going to live. There's not some essential essence that is me and will always be me and is different than anybody else. And like when we have to give up all of our childhood toys, it can be painful. If we're not quite ready, it can be very painful. right? But the wonderful thing about it is when we can give them up it opens us up to something that is far greater, and that's where we need to go. So a lot of people, a lot of people come to Buddhism, and and their minds will do everything they can to avoid confronting the reality that there there is no substantial self exist uh, self existent self, you know. And that is the clinging to that notion that is causing them all their problems and, and that is collectively, collectively causing all of us all of our problems. You know, and um, as, uh, as someone who's not here tonight brought up one time, but yes, by teaching those, because sometimes it can be very helpful to teach people whose level of understanding and spiritual development is not so sophisticated, but let them cling to the notion of reincarnation, because that's what we're really talking about. The Buddha taught rebirth, and he said, what is reborn is only the karmic seeds. You, there is no self that's reborn. And everybody that ever came to him and tried to say, is this what's reborn? He'd say, no. Where have you ever heard me say such nonsense? Uh, and he'd go through and explain that's not a self that's not reborn what's reborn is karmic predispositions and this this that you are is not that but yes it's true that for many people it's perhaps useful and helpful to get them started on the path if 
they are allowed to uh, entertain the belief in reincarnation and the comfort it gives them. And okay, well, if I don't get enlightened in this lifetime, lifetime, at least if I can lead a more or less virtuous life, I will get reborn in a, another form. And next time, I, I, you know, might be more conducive. In the meantime, to the you know. Uh, if that helps advance them on the path, sooner or later they'll come to the point where they're ready to discover uh, the the underlying truth. And in terms of the magical, mystical, childlike views that we'd like to cling to, there's a loss in this. But in terms of the much greater, profound, more wonderful truth that lies beyond, it's it's so much worth giving up clinging to those notions. But it's not easy to get beyond them. But the fact is, as long as you cling to the idea of self, your mind is going to generate craving and aversion. And you're going to stay in this cycle. And that's why the the very first stage of enlightenment involves overcoming attachment to the personal self as being self-existently real thing. Yes? Where do the um, Bardo beings and the other realms come in? Well, uh, come in, all of, whether we're talking about human beings, future or past, or whether we're talking about Rebirths in other realms. It's always the same thing. It's it's not you. It's not the self. The only thing that's reborn is the the karmic seeds. It's like yeah, you know, think of it like DNA. You know, the only thing that gets passed upon, passed along is uh, is the causal principles which produce a particular kind of of result. So the seeds could just go into the other places? Like the realms? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Right. If you... If in the course of a lifetime you generate a lot of volitional intention out of desire and aversion. It's very unwholesome. Perhaps causes a huge amount of suffering to others. That makes an imprint upon uh, the mind stuff. Call it mind stuff. Cheetah, mind stuff. The stream, the stream of mind stuff. Now, if it didn't, the Buddha and nobody else could look back and see what had happened before, you know. But just as in the material universe, we can look at what is, and we can project backwards from what is, and we can figure out what was that came for this to be. The same thing, the imprints that exist in the mind stuff can be read backwards to, you know, the causal relationships that caused that to be. So, 
in your life, if you make a lot of, uh, if you commit a lot of unwholesome karma, and there's an imprint, and look at it this way: it's like if you threw, uh, if, if you compare the 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 mind stream or stream of consciousness to uh, a flowing stream of water, if you threw a handful of leaves in, they would stay together. In terms of these mental formations that these karmic propensities involve, they're interconnected. They're interconnected with each other. An unwholesome act doesn't happen out of nothing. It happens out of the totality of the mental formations that are one of the five aggregates of what you are. And even with the disintegration of the body and even with the disintegration of most of the mental formations, there's imprints and those imprints are interconnected. And so they will tend to stay together as they flow along. Well, these imprints might cause uh, a a being to come into existence in a hell realm, which is which comes into existence with karmic predispositions that are the result of that imprint. You know. Now, on the one hand, if that was you, you'd say, "Oh, I don't want that to happen to me, so therefore I will be good." Well, that's good. <laughs> that is good. And if you believe in reincarnation, which that would be, then believing in reincarnation might help you to lead a more ethical and virtuous life. And, and that would be all right, because you don't want to be reborn in hell. At a higher level of understanding, this me is a fiction. You are one with the universe. We are all one. So, any being that's reborn in hell is you. And any being that's reborn in heaven is you. And so, at that level, to the same degree, but at, at a whole different level of understanding, you know, uh, you don't want to perpetuate any aspect of the suffering in the wholeness of what is. Buddhas don't commit unwholesome acts. And as people uh, attain the first and the subsequent stages of enlightenment, they are less and less predisposed to commit unwholesome acts. What they say of a person when they attain stream entry, the first stage of enlightenment, is they shift from an external moral compass, you know, uh, I undertake the precept to refrain from, I undertake the precept to refrain from, thou shalt not, this is bad, don't do that, to an inner moral compass, because they've seen the truth, that anything they do to anyone, they do to themselves. Now sure, a simplistic way of understanding that is, anything that I do to you, well, I'm going to get, I, me, the same person is going to get reborn, and somebody else is going to do that to me. That is, you know, that's that's a simplistic way of understanding. It's not, it's not that it's not true. It's just that it's it's, on the one hand, it's overly simplistic. On the other hand, it allows you to keep clinging to the idea that there is 
There is a me behind all of this. And as long as you think there's a me behind all of this, you're going to be really concerned with pleasing the me and avoiding any suffering you can. And there's, there's the me and there's the not me. And you're going to, you, the, the logic is that you know I'm, I'm willing to, to take from and do things to the not me in order to advance and enhance and, and uh, um, satisfy the me. So as long as we create this boundary, we're going to keep doing those things. And that's why we've got to get beyond attachment to the view of self. Because it's not true. It makes us do a lot of things that we shouldn't, and all those things cause us to suffer. I wanted to kind of come back to a question I asked you last week since we were kind of back on the same topic. And it was, there was something I was trying to pin down on that. Anyway, the way you described karma in the past, which I found really useful and really accessible, was this idea that it's really kind of, um, it's kind of a self-conditioning, or it's, it's any kind of conditioning that takes place. And our, and our intervention in our, in our own karma is our, our re-self-conditioning. Mm-hmm. Um, so each time a situation arises, we yeah. try to act differently. And the, the, the language you use is very, um, uh, I don't know, it's, it's classical conditioning. It's, it's, it's something that's taking place in the hardwiring of, of the brain or you know, something, mm-hmm. some physiological structure, mechanism. Um, and I just, I don't know, to me, I don't see still how the, the, the kind of, like, that you're still using the, that, that language of this kind of, um, expansive, consuming mind kind of plane, like another field of existence that's that's kind of running in tandem, um, and that's where this information is maybe clustered and communicated to the next life. Um, because I mean, to me, when you really kind of break it apart and you, and you don't suggest all that, um, and, and and like you said, you um, kind of drop these ideas of any kind of self continuation, then I mean, really. Like your example of ge- genetic heritability is is probably the closest thing to reincarnation. It's I mean it's the only physical causal connection there really is that makes oneself another self. So I guess what I, what I I'm just so curious because you should, it still sounds to me like you're you're kind of talking this language that there is this other this ex- expansive mind plane something that permeates everything mm-hmm. and. And in a way, it makes so much more sense that there is that in order to motivate myself to, to try to reach a place where, where I'm kind of connected to everything. Because otherwise, it's like, chances are, I've worked my entire life, maybe I, I get to that non-returner state at 89 and die a year later. Nobody's the better for it, and I've had one year of enlightenment. Mm-hmm. It's probably pretty feeble. <laughs> so, but that's, I mean, it is... Yeah, well, but it's still, I, I mean, the, I don't know, it's... I just I have a lot of trouble getting my mind around the value of it either way. One way it seems like you have to suggest that there really is this kind of pervasive mental realm and there is some kind of continuation even if it's this kind of loose mental karmic thing that's not really so. Or it is all material and we still can reach these states but it is just going to be as long lasting as one lifetime and whatever impact you can have on those around you is, is what greater good comes out of it. And, and I'm just, and I'm also curious if this is something that you've really had experience with, um, the the more the, the mental plane. Well, the problem is here is that we're 
we're talking across two different levels of reality. Relative reality and, and ultimate reality. Which is which is a little bit challenging. Um, now, if you can clearly see, if you can clearly clearly understand the idea that's being presented in the, the five aggregates, right? you know, and, and it's this is conceptually a very useful thing, but it's not the only way to look at things, but it's very, very useful. But it's, you know, if, if you can understand that clearly and you can see that, yes, this is what we all are, and you can see that one aspect of mental formations, you can see that this is where your karmic results arise from, and this is where your karmic seeds are planted, right? That, you know, and, 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 and look for anything else. Feel free to look any other place they could be. And I'm sure you've done that. But it's important to do that. Where, where else could this be? You know, and, and we can come up with these, you know, all, all kinds of... Uh, imaginary ideas, you know, there's a God that's keeping track. His whole job is to keep track of everything you did and assign you karmic results and make it happen. You know, or, or, or any way you want. But if if you can see the truth of the five aggregates, then you can see that karma and its results are about these mental formations. Okay. Now what we can say about these mental formations is that they are impermanent, constantly changing, they're coming into existence and they're passing away again. And that everything is permeated by the same kind of causality. We're seeing karma as a particular kind of causality that uh, its primary locus is in, in the mental formations. And we're seeing that Everything else is is arising and passing away, also according to laws of cause and effect causality. Where was I going with this? Uh, okay. Um, and then we realize in examining this more and more closely, that as soon as we start to accept the universality of of this causality, that everything is interconnected, everything is absolutely, completely, and totally interconnected, and that The separateness, thingness, oneness, the phenomenon, the character of phenomena, phenomena that we experience, are something that the mind does with this oneness. It 
it latches on to certain aspects of this process of flux and it projects the character of, of thingness of, of, uh, of relatively persistent I mean none of us think anything is absolutely permanent but the, the re- this idea of relative persistence of thingness rather than acknowledging that everything that is made of parts and is causally determined is constantly changing even if we're not aware of the changes and all that makes it have the appearance of thingness is something our mind does to it and the analogy that I've used before is like a whirlpool in the stream you know our mind makes the whirlpool into a thing but is the, is the whirlpool really a thing separate from the stream it's not but it has causes and effects it comes into existence goes out of existence you know and while it's there it has certain characteristics it's identifiable and everything else this is true of everything the existence that we have is in a world that is a projection of the mind that takes an undivided whole that is completely interconnected causally interconnected and the mind parses it up into pieces with relationships between them and we live in this sort of constructed world of the mind. Now we could say, oh, okay, so this is all made up. The mind's the only thing that's real. (laughs) But then we look at the mind, and the mind is the same thing. I mean, it's that massive mental formations. That's what the mind is. It's that massive mental formations interacting with the affective feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and the perceptions that are generated every time the sense organs deliver some sensation, and the consciousness that arises. Boy, that's the that's the neat one, that consciousness, because you know where where wherever we're conscious, that's I mean that's the closest to being us that we can that we can come up with. All of our uniqueness is uh, is is in our mental formations. But uh, the wonder is the consciousness. You know, and you might even say, why are we conscious? There is absolutely no reason, you know. Could, in, in theory, uh, someday, uh, in, in theory and probably in fact, somebody will make a robot who can exactly act exactly like a human being. And, I mean, somebody may say, well, maybe it really is conscious. But, I mean, it's just, where does consciousness come in? That's one of the things that's really remarkable as a subject-objective experience, is consciousness. But the mind, the mind that's creating all these projections, that's just the mental formations. And we can see that it too is conditioned. It's all these different processes. It's this accumulation of all these things that, you know, all of our experiences and the things that we've learned and, and uh, uh, maybe the ones that we've inherited karmically, and, and all of our desires and aversions and everything else, but that's our mental formations and that's our mind. So even the mind that creates this reality has the same characteristic of being uh, temporary, uh, composed, not a single thing, but composed of many separate parts and all of them causally determined and all of them interconnected. So there is this vast interconnected oneness. Now, so we're kind of moving from relative reality towards ultimate reality, right, by stages. Sort of halfway in between ultimate, uh, relative reality and ultimate reality is, the, is the, the view, an intellectual view of comprehension that we can hold and understand, 
that kind of distinguishes well there's a there's whatever it is that produces all the sensations that we experience and then there's the mind that acts as, acts on that and as I told you before it doesn't matter whether you what you call that first we can call that first aspect physicality the material universe or we can make it a black box and label it karma you know why does the doorbell ring that's my karma why does that meteor from outer space come and land on my foot? My karma. It doesn't matter what you call it, whether you call it physicality or whether you karma. Call it, you don't know what it is. All you know is that you have sensations and uh, whatever's behind those sensations. So We can divide experience, therefore, into the sensations, whatever the source they are, and then what we call mentality is what acts on those sensations. So this is our halfway point between the ordinary relative reality of everyday life and the ultimate reality that we would like to get to is when we realize that there is mentality and the sensations coming from, you know, call it physicality or whatever. Our mind can work on this logically and process it and see that, see the absolute causal nature uh, of what we call the physical and likewise see the causal nature of what we call the mental although that takes us a little more sophisticated takes us a little longer to do the average person on the street can see the causality of the physical but has a little more trouble accepting that the mental is equally causal in its entirety you know if you've come to the point of being able to do that, you know, you've, you've come to a little bit higher level of understanding, and that's wonderful. Now, to go from this intermediate stage to the ultimate, we're going to have to recognize, we're going to have to, uh, until we experience it, it just has to be something that we uh, accept by inference and, uh, uh, but, if everything we know is interconnected in this way that gives it a singular wholeness and it is empty of the uh, thingness and individuation that our mind projects then and we see the same kind of interconnectedness and causality operating in what appears to be the mental that it's very likely that if we understood more fully that which is called the mental, we would discover there is the same indivisibleness and the same interconnectedness and the same non-thingness in that as well. And then take it just one small step further and uh, why do the, why do we need to have these two separate? Why does it need? To, why do we need to continue to assume that the physical and the mental are somehow different from each other? They're obviously interconnected. They're obviously causally related, right? So uh, they're starting to sound like they must be one whole. Now you hear somebody speak of 
and ultimate reality is non-dual. Ultimate reality is uh, it's not divided into all of these different thingnesses and, and individual. It, it's not individuated. Speak of it as it's empty of all of those things the mind projects on it. That which is empty of all of these thingnesses that the mind projects on it is sometimes called emptiness, which misleads people because it makes it sound like emptiness is a thing. Emptiness is not a thing. Emptiness is the actual nature of ultimate reality. Now we could say, we could say, we, we could for convenience call ultimate reality emptiness because it, it has the nature of being empty of all of these things. And so we'll do that. And so then what do, what do we find when we go to uh, what enlightened people have to say? Everything arises out of emptiness and disappears back into emptiness. Hmm, very interesting. Another way we can look at this ultimate reality, well, another way it's described, it is experienced with the cessation of craving and the cessation of the constructing activities of the mind. And you see we're saying the same thing here, right? Cessation of the constructing activities of the mind which are based in craving means the cessation of the projections of which ultimate reality is empty. So sometimes ultimate reality is called nirvana. Nirvana actually means cessation of craving. But it's that which is known directly when cessation when craving ceases. So from the point of view of ultimate reality everything is one past present future there is no there's there's no separation and this so what happens to what happens to all of us what happens to relative reality in the process what if what happens to when, when you've got nirvana what happens to samsara where did it go Nirvana and samsara are the same thing. We perceive that same thing as samsara when our minds do their constructing activities. Then we create this illusion that samsara. But they're not different. There's only one. There's not two ultimate realities. It's not samsara, and we get on a boat and we paddle over here to nirvana, right? And then we look back and say, "Yeah, I'm glad I'm not there anymore." It's the same thing. It's, it, there's only one ultimate reality. Let's go to this halfway thing of where we kind of understand things. We can see that as long as we're in the realm of space and time. And even though we understand the projecting behavior of the mind, and we can see the emptiness, we can understand the emptiness of the projections, but nevertheless, we're still experiencing them 
in, in the way that we do as, as the mind creates them. So that's the level at which we're talking about, well, the mind, mind stuff, the, that aspect of ultimate reality that's the mind stuff, through time manifests causality. Now, I suppose the thing that you might wonder is why do we why why do we need to accept that? You don't. You don't need to at all. You've you've you'll come you may come to a certain point, I've come to a certain point where to fill in the gaps I needed to keep going a little deeper, a little further in certain directions. But you don't necessarily have to. Um, you don't need to go beyond your own life and the present moment. You, know, you don't need to go into future lives and past lives and trying to understand how, when this body breaks up and disappears, karma could carry on in the future, and you don't need to worry about the long-term, the, the the temporal unfolding of ultimate reality. It's not necessary. You can disregard that entirely. One of the most revered uh, teachers in the world, uh, said to be a fully enlightened uh, arhat, Buddhadasa Bhikkhu. If you look at his teachings, every one of them, he says, rebirth. Forget it. It's not a you know. It's not a part of Buddhism. It's not necessary. Forget it. it has nothing to do with it. <coughs> so you don't you don't need to. If you feel like you need to go in the direction of that, and for a long time I didn't. For a long time I didn't, and then things kept coming my way. People kept asking me questions. People had need to understand. And okay, well, I better start exploring this a little bit more. And so I, I started doing that. So, I mean, that's helpful. I, I still, I feel like it, I'm, it's, I, there's still this distinction that that I feel like I, I'd like to see made or something. Um, but basically, you're saying, when you say the mind manifests causality, so the way I've heard you talk before, the way I've understood it, maybe this is my model of reality. I'm sure it's my model of reality. But, um, is that, you know, the, the way you described it, the mind is obviously affected by by physical causality. You get knocked on the head and right. you're, you're unconscious. Right. Um, and you could say that goes both ways. But um, it seems to me like causality most likely functions perfectly well without any mentation. Um, that... And I guess what, I don't know, I don't feel like I'm articulating very well tonight, but like, I guess ultimately what I'm getting at is, you talk about ultimate reality, and I'm wondering, I could see ultimate reality um, even at the, at, the, at the level of, you know, enlightenment and all that, as still being constrained by, by physiology. Um, by, you know, it's, it's a much, it's, it's the highest level a human being can reach, um, and somehow this whole idea of ego is bypassed and this, there's this direct experience of sense perception, and then all the constructs, the mental constructs that are there, 
are recognized for what they are, but they're still utilized because you're functioning in space and time and you're, you're an enemy in the world. Um, but it still seems like there's this really kind of um, distinct cutoff from the mind and, and, and consciousness in the skull interacting through the senses and through the, you know, through the limbs and through the you know, organs in the body um, and what goes on outside of the human being. Um, and that the, you know, there isn't necessarily a direct communication of information from the mind into reality uh, that stays imprinted after the fact. Um, we have intentions and we act on the world, but what comes from that is just kind of a, a matter of chance. I don't know. Anyway, so what the, the only point I'm trying to get is, so when you say the mind uh, manifests physical causality, or you, you use that kind of language, I, I don't get the sense from what you said before that you, that the, the physical world's really at all dependent on the mind um, for its continued functioning. I mean, how would we know one way or the other? But that, is that, that, I don't think that's what you're suggesting, is it? Is it? <laughs> the physical world, the physical world as we tend to perceive it, Is the physical world as we tend to perceive it is totally dependent upon the mind because it's created by the mind. As we perceive it. As we perceive it. And then I understand that. Okay. So I'm trying to make the distinction of what goes on when I leave okay. the room or when I die right. and as it progresses a million yeah. years from here. Right. Well, you see, the. When you leave the room, your your world goes with you, <laughs> and the idea that the room that your mind has projected still exists when you're not projecting it any longer, it doesn't. It only exists when your mind projects it, and if later on your mind should happen to project a memory of the room. At that time, the mind, your mind is projecting a memory of the room. The, the, there is a separate universe for every single one of us, and uh, that separate universe for every single one of us has its representation of this room, which comes into and out of existence whenever we happen to perceive it, either directly or as memory. Now, if we extend the question, you know, and I'll just point out to you that even from the point of view of quantum physics, uh, when you look in the room, what's here is here. When you turn your head away, it all disappears and becomes a probability equation until somebody else looks in the room again, or until you look in the room again. You know, it, it does. It, it, you look in the room and it collapses the the quantum wave equation and gives it a single result, that which you perceive. You look away, and now all of a sudden, it's nothing but probabilities again. And when you turn around and look again, it collapses. And it becomes, I mean, that's so. That's really no different. Even the physicists are saying the same thing that I just said. That this, this room only exists when you perceive this room, and it persists persists the way you happen to perceive it. 
But we'd say the question, okay, you say, yeah, but, 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 yeah, what's, what's really happening, though? What's, what's really happening? Okay, see, right? Isn't that where we want to go? Okay, what's, I know my mind, but, but, you know, take my mind out, what's really happening? Right? It's this, you've got to accept that what's really happening, now we're talking about ultimate reality, okay? Well, ultimate reality isn't isn't this room. <laughs> it just plain isn't this room. And your mind is part of ultimate reality. It's not like, you know, we can say, okay, I take my mind away and now here's ultimate reality. Your mind and ultimate reality are one and the same. Your mind is part of it. Mentality and the physicality are really the same. That's the problem. And just catch yourself, and, and really good thing, just keep noticing how your mind keeps wanting to do that. Your mind keeps wanting to say, yeah, but, you know, and it wants, it wants the world that it creates to have some kind of reality. It wants there to be a tree in the forest when you're not there. You know, just as your mind wants you to exist, and it's always going to keep coming up with this, yeah, but, yeah, but. And we don't need to get too, too metaphysical. As a matter of fact, we should kind of cut the metaphysical discussion off here and get back to, <laughs> to the experiential. Yeah. Well, I was going to the metaphysical, so I just... Oh. <laughs> well, yeah. It was just an example of, of what you just said, that the mind keeps wanting to cling on to this yeah. sense of reality and sense of me, mm-hmm. because... What I was going to say is, um, in there's this karmic. Um, it, it's 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 only your karma that sort of exists in your next life. If you, if, if, I mean, that's right. However, it's it's uh, my karma, mm-hmm. not Terry's karma. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So in that sense, it's. There's still the mind still keeps clinging on to the my karma and not Terry's karma. Well, the the, the that <coughs> that's right. But let us not let us not mistake. You know, I, I, I I'll, I'll tell you uh, something that someone came. They said, "Well, what about these patients that have a split brain operation? Do you know what that is? The what split brain? Split brain. They they." Our brain has two identical halves, and some people for epilepsy, they sever the connections between them. And the two different halves have different personalities, generate different desires and aversion, and even whenever they have the opportunity, act in different ways. They're like two different people. And so he said to me, uh, okay, so now all of a sudden we have one, one person, and when, when they die, so like, I have two people, well, why not? Why not? Well, you know, if once they become separated one one from the other, and and why why do you assume that all of the karmic pre there's nothing to hold all of these together? You know, if we sort of throw two handfuls of leaves in the stream at about the same time, some of the leaves are going to mix up together. You know, um, if uh, an embryo is formed, an egg is fertilized, and an embryo is formed. 
And there is more than one strong karmic predisposition from different sources. Why, why can't they come together? And why can't they separate? You know, uh, there's no. We're making self. As soon as we start to say that all of my karma has got to be completely separate, we're making self again. And and if you think, if you feel like that's necessary, then go back to this other thing of, okay, I am part of this person's, this previous life person's karma, and part of that, and part of that. I'm not all of this, I'm not all of that. I'm just a combination. I'm a combination, even, even, even if you just somehow try to keep it in a linear sequence, you can't say that you are all of any uh, one person's karmic consequences, right? Uh, you, have, you have an infinite number of lifetimes of, 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 of karma, okay? So, um, well, definitely, since you've been born till today, you haven't been manifesting uh, even 500,000 lifetimes of karma. So therefore, there's a whole lot of pick and choose there. Okay? So what you are then is a pick and choose, bit of this, bit of this, bit of this, bit of that, from an uncountable number of previous lifetimes, even if you imagine them all in an unbroken sequence. Well, when you realize that, isn't it rather a small thing to say, well, you know, Maybe there's no reason that all of this holds together as a single entity, even from one rebirth to the next. It doesn't. I mean, the Dalai Lama, you know, when he talks about the previous incarnations of the previous Dalai Lamas, you know, he he has a connection. He has certain kinds of connections with certain of them, none at all with others, right? So. His description is not a particularly bad one of, you know, okay, some of the karmic seeds, the karmic propensities of the fifth Dalai Lama, he feels are manifesting in him. And certain karmic propensities of the 13th Dalai Lama, he feels are manifesting in him. And he feels he doesn't have really any connection at all with all of these others, you know. So... Okay, and we, we're going way over time. So, Terry, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, this is like a weird question to ask, because after the retreat and now, like this past couple weeks, it feels like there's big changes going on inside. Uh-huh. But at the same time, it feels like I could never put my finger on what it was. You know? And mm-hmm. then it feels like, Something's really happening or not. So all those things are happening at the same time. I don't know what's the, the care and feeding of feelings of major changes that might or might not be really happening. <laughs> That's a weird question, but um, yeah, I, I don't even know how, how to begin to answer that. Except this let me like say this. I'm going to say say this to all of you that I've been I've been giving you a lot of. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to fast-track to you, okay? I'm not just regurgitating the same old stuff that you might have heard over and over again and found in the books. I'm trying to explain to you what it really means at a higher level of understanding. And I'm hoping it will produce some changes in you. You need the meditation. You need the practice. 
You need to bring it to an intuitive level. You need to discover these things for yourself. I'm trying to plant a whole bunch of seeds that hopefully will sprout really quickly. You know, I want you, I want you all to experience an inner shift, an inner transformation. I, uh, uh, maybe a whole bunch of little inner transformations and then a big one. You know, but I'm, I'm trying to make you feel inner changes. I'm trying to bring you to that. That's why I'm talking to you at the level that I am about the self, rebirth, and karma. You know, not telling you the nice little children's fairy stories that you may. <laughs> so yeah, good. Feel feel some inner shift. See where that takes you. Don't cling to it. One thing your mind will do is your mind will slip and slide around trying to find another comfortable place. If I say something that bumps it out of a comfortable place, it's going to do its best to wiggle around until it finds another place to come to rest. You know? But... So... Anyway, I, I think that's enough for tonight. And thank you all. I'll see you again next week. Or next time, whenever that happens to be.